Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Views on View. My name is Steve Edwards, and I will be the MC for today. With me on our panel, we also have Lindsay Wardell. Hello from Portland. And Austin Gill, a.k.a. Stegosaurus. Hi from San Diego. I think he said hi from San Diego there. And hi from San Diego. Our, yeah, sounds not real good for you. And then our victim, excuse me, guest today is Matt Brophy. So Matt, why don't you uh, give us a little introduction about yourself, why you're famous, what we're going to be talking about, etc. Sure. Well, I can start by saying I'm definitely not famous. Um, I'm from Philadelphia. I work for Urban Outfitters, uh, working on their e-commerce sites for their three major brands, Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, and Free People. I've been there for about five years now, and we started a transition over to VIEW just about a year and a half ago or so. Um, and I think you know the, the reason we're, we're on here today was from a lightning talk I gave at ViewConf last year on progressively enhanced form validation. So I think we'll get into that and, and maybe a couple other things we're doing at Urban. One of the most popular pairings for VIEW on the front end is Laravel or PHP on the back end. If you're setting up and running a PHP app, then why hassle with all the back end config? Instead, count on Cloudways. Cloudways provides a solution that will have you up and running quickly. They offer exceptional performance and reliability and 24-7 support. So your website or your web app, which is probably crucial to your business, will run in an environment designed for it. Go run it on Cloudways. If you use the code DEVCHAT, you'll get 30% off for three months. So just out of curiosity, you said you were transitioning to Vue for your e-commerce. What were you transitioning from? So we started a full replatform about five years ago. We had uh, three brands, three dev teams, three websites, three databases, the whole, the works. And, you know, they kind of realized at that point, um, you know, free people would spend six months and they'd build some cool new feature and they'd ship it and it'd be great. And Anthro would be like, oh, that's, that's fun. We want that. And then Anthro would spend six months building the same feature and shipping it to their website. So they, they transitioned into this uh, white label platform. So about five years ago, we started that and we were just before, uh, we were before Vue was really a thing. And we were just a little too early for React to be kind of mainstream yet. Uh, and I definitely don't think React SSR was, was anywhere usable. So we ended up with a Python server rendered app that is hydrated on the front end by a custom component library. So then about two years ago, we started to, to look at, you know, what can we do to get a little more modern, a little more industry tooling? You know, Vue React had come a very long way since we started. So we're in the process of moving off of that now. Cool. So as you mentioned, uh, you had mentioned progressively enhanced form validation. Now I had done, uh, if you JavaScript Jabber episode 415, I did an, an interview with a guy named Maximiliano Furtman, and we talked about progressive web apps. So I guess we could, if we could start out with a description of what we mean by in progressively enhanced form validation and uh, if that relates to progressive web apps and if so, how? Sure. So I, I think in, you know, in my definition, as far as the, you know, the title of that talk and, and my blog post is uh, progressive, not, not in the sense of a progressive web app, so to speak, but in the sense of building on top of existing HTML functionality using things that the browser happens to support. So if, uh, if a browser has the validity state feature, we can sort of opt into using it. But if it doesn't, we can fall back on existing HTML5 validation. So supporting older browsers, supporting, you know, cases of JavaScript disabled, things like that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because uh, uh, it, obviously it's always going to be faster to use native APIs from a browser than 
having to add in more JavaScript that does the functionality that the browser can do for you, correct? Yeah, yeah, that for sure. And then there was there was this other thing when we, you know, we started looking, we didn't immediately decide day one, like, we're not using a third party form library, we're going to write our own, like we, we do try to use what's out there and not, you know, DIY or, or build it in house all the time. But one of the one of the main factors was the, the ones we looked at, uh, vvalidate and that's the other one is Vulidate. I think are the two sort of leading ones right now. Uh, both of them didn't build on top of the HTML5 validation. They had you know, a bit of a meta syntax you had to learn to do validation. So there's like a bit of a, a thing that we're, you know, our developers know how to do HTML5 validation. They've been doing it for years. They've been doing it in you know, other frameworks and other applications. So if we could just leverage that existing knowledge, that'd be great. Otherwise, you, know, you kind of have to learn this additional meta syntax that comes with the library we're using. Okay, so you mentioned your lightning talk. So What's the gist of your lightning talk? Uh, so the gist there is um, effectively using a, I guess like a wrapper component or a higher order component that is renderless. So it just takes in a slot uh, and renders it out and that slot would be your input element. And then <clears throat> inside the higher order component, you can just access the DOM element itself, the raw element. So completely sort of outside of the view world and look at the dot validity property, which is the validity state API which can tell you, you know, if it has a required attribute on it, it'll tell you that that input is currently invalid or valid based on that attribute. Uh, and it looks at all the supported, you know, required min length and, and those other ones place or pattern, I think is another one that's commonly used. So with that high order component, you can essentially react to any changes to the input as the user's typing. You can re-look at that validity property and you can provide real-time feedback and, and sort of emit events upward to say, this input is now valid, it's now invalid, here are the certain things that are not validating and you can message your user in real time about what's failing. So when you say in real time, is this uh, as they're entering data and say tabbing out of a field or like when they hit the submit mm -hmm. button? Yeah, so I, either is possible. It, it's kind of up to, to the application there if you want to only do this after a blur event or if you want to wait till a submit event, uh, if you want to do it per keystroke, you know, if they've maybe come back into an invalid field and are updating it and you want them to know, yes, I've made it pass without having to, to exit the field again. So there's that, that isn't, you know, in this approach, as far as just communicating upwards, the validation state, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter what you want the eventual UX to be. You have control over that still. Hey, uh, now if I could jump in really quick here. So the question is really comparing uh, things like a progressively enhanced input that uses the validity API to something like Vulidate. Like, can you get yourself far enough along with some of the more advanced features like uh, a computed um, validation logic? For example, if uh, a password field is entered, I want the other password field to be required. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Like, one, one field being dependent on the validity of another field or, or the fact that it's filled out. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, you know, I'll be honest, right to start, we are building our, we're converting to view sort of route by route and we've done homepage and our category pages and our product pages. We have not yet done uh, like our, my account section uh, or like our heavy checkout flow where, where it starts to get form intensive. So we, you know, we haven't really stress tested our current approach with some of those heavy duty forms. Um, but we do support, we actually have one more uh, component wrapping that, that, that we call input enhancer internally. And that, that takes care of essentially putting the label or legend in front of the input and, 
and rendering out the errors, but we have supported uh, custom validations based on attributes. So the internals of, uh, and I don't know how much this is in the lightning talk or the code pen that's, that's set up there, but what we're using internally that I would, I would love to open source at some point um, is mostly attribute based. So it's looking to say, if this element has a required attribute, then I will look at the required validation and propagate that. And then we've actually added some ability to pass custom validation based on data attributes. So uh, off the top of my head, we would generally lift that logic uh, up above and we would be able to uh, bind that data attribute on say the password two field, the confirm password, based on the presence of V model on password one having a value. And so we can actually toggle, do I want to validate or do I not want based on something else? So theoretically, yeah, I think we'd be able to handle that, but we have not quite done anything like that yet. Yeah, I mean, I, that sounds right. Um, I'm, part, of me, part of me is trying to prod into like saying, this is too good to be true. Like I, I really like Validate and I have experience working with the Validate API. I haven't gone down so far, but it, it would be really awesome to use that under the hood and have all uh, integrate, like you said, with all of the native HTML5 form validation things that are already available in the browser. Yeah, so is, uh, it's been a while since I've looked at those two. Is Vulidate the one that adds like the dollar, dollar V model stuff and you have to update your V models to use these new dollar props? Or is that is that the other one, Vvalidate? Uh, so Vulidate adds a dollar sign V property to the view component and yes. you kind of yeah. define, yeah, I think, I think you're thinking of the right one. Um, okay. You don't have to integrate it with your, well, we might get, be getting too much into the weeds on, on mm -hmm. uh, how the docs or how the implementation actually works. It's hard. It's hard without looking at code in front of you. Right. 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 Um, but yeah, I think, like I said, I, I've so far we've yet to run into to anything we can't quite do, but we have, we've definitely run into some, you know, SSR things that make it a little tricky uh, and things like that. So we're, we're actually sort of considering right now backing off the SSR version of the implementation and just making this a client side only enhancement. Can you talk a little bit to what that SSR story looks like? Cause I would imagine yeah. this is only client side uh, validation that you need, right? Like server side validation would be handled completely different than, within your market. Yeah, so right? we initially in just, you know, in, in hopes of keeping everything kind of truly universal, we're, we're trying to, to make everything just work server or client, whether or not it's actually used that way. The use case that we do not have currently that we were sort of aiming to not exclude would be, um, you know, rendering a form maybe after an invalid submission that had errors present right off the bat. And so if, you know, if we could actually server render like, Hey, this, this input, you put a name in there, that name doesn't meet some requirement and we want to render the error message for that. Um, the way our, the way the wrapper component works is essentially on, on Mount, it just walks its child tree and it finds the input. And normally that input is the root element. But if you had to wrap a div or something around your input in the client, it's very easy to just sort of walk your child tree and find that input. Uh, that's a little trickier during SSR because you don't have a DOM, you have you know, a vNode tree that view gives you. And for the most part, you can walk it like you would walk the DOM, but we found that things like functional components and, and other kind of wrapper custom components uh, tend to just stop the vDOM tree and you can't get to their children nodes in the vDOM on the server. 
So I don't know if that's intended or if, if it's in the way that we tried to, to implement it, but it's, I think we've kind of decided that it would be significantly easier if we just didn't try to solve that problem, which might not actually exist. Yeah, are you talking about uh, after, after a form has been submitted and yeah. you're sending that request to the server and then the server is validating the form saying you have some errors and then it's kicking back like uh, you're doing a full page refresh, not a, yeah, not the, a JavaScript so this, form. Yeah, that use case would be for our, you know, we have, we have a, um, a long-term uh, goal of maybe being able to do a JavaScript disabled path through our e-commerce app at some point. So this would really be for that tiny, tiny use case. Oh, uh, yeah. Intense. Yeah, I don't know that uh, we won't get there anytime soon. But, but you know, we're, we're kind of keeping that just in the back of our head as we, as we write new things. Like, if we can avoid eliminating that possibility, that'd be great. Um, whether or not we actually get there is, is very much up in the air. I noticed in your uh, blog post on this, you have the, the view component with validation. But it looks like that's not... That, that's something that you would write custom for each input, right? It's not like a, a library that you could download and just apply and then stick in your custom uh, configuration, right? Well, so, uh, it, it should be. In, in, so internally, we use it for all types of inputs. Uh, and and you know, obviously, the, the version of with validation that we're using internally is more complex than what's in that uh, code pen. But uh, there are some minor things you have to, to handle when it comes to like radios and checkboxes versus an input versus select. But in general, it, it is possible to make that work for, for all inputs and it can be sort of agnostic to what you pass in the slot. Okay. So you don't have to write a single one. Like I have a name field here. I write my with validation wrapper for that. Then I have an email field. I wrap it for that. Then I yes. have a custom field. I don't have to do one for that. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've got it wrapped around, um, text inputs, email inputs, and uh, radios, and selects at the moment. Cool. Are you, are you wrapping each individual radio, or are you wrapping like a radio group? I believe, I'd have to go back to that, but we are, we're wrapping the whole group, um, and essentially looking on each update, we're sort of finding the first non-disabled radio button, because we do, we do have some that disable, like a, you know, a size that's out of stock. Uh -huh. And we found that uh, once an input goes disabled, the browser stops updating its validity state. It just sort of goes stale, uh, even if you're changing other radios in that same group. But if you find an active radio in the group, it is reflective of the validity state for the group as a whole. Okay. So does that mean that this with validity component could be used to wrap an entire form and just walk every in? Do I have to individual inputs and a so, whole form. Yeah. Um, in theory, you could probably update it that way. What we've done internally is we actually have one more level. Uh, we have a, a form wrapper that's higher up. So with validity is it, with validation is always responsible for a single input, but then it also, every time it gets an update event, it actually sends that up to its parent form component and the form component sort of wrangles all of its children and gives you one data structure um, of sort of the validity of the form as a whole. Cool. What we're, what we're doing is pretty similar. Even like the, you know, the meta information we're tracking is, is really similar to what um, Angular 1's form validation stuff gave you, where you have uh, it, you know, a touched property and a dirty property and a valid property, things like that. We kind of track them each at the individual input level and then globally at the form level. Would you be able to go through those, the touch, dirty, and sure. what those mean for those who may not know? Yeah. Yeah. So they, they become sort of really helpful metadata when you're um, sort of figuring out how you want your UX to display. So 
Uh, dirty would be the first time you've actually modified an input. So generally, if you know if an input is required but the user has never touched it, you don't want to show them like, hey, this thing is invalid because they've not even had a chance to change it. So dirty is usually triggered by the first you know key press event you see on a given element. Um, touched usually refers to that the user has been in that field and then left it. So you're listening for a blur event, and that that's generally the pattern we use is that if you're say you're typing a password and that password needs to be eight characters, like we don't wanna message you on the first keystroke, like, hey, this thing's invalid, it's too short. Like you just haven't had a chance to get to eight characters yet. So most of the time we don't show any of the errors until the touched event or the touch property toggles. Uh, and then valid would just be sort of the summation of all validation attributes. So if it's required and it has a min length, you know, and it has a, a pattern on it, that valid field would mean that all three of those are either passing or there's at least one failing. Cool, thank you. So just yeah, to clarify, quite, oh sorry, go ahead Austin. Uh, I was just gonna say, um, it, it might actually be useful, I know that we're kind of mentioning the API itself, but it might be useful to go into a little bit more detail about what the validity API actually is and what it provides us. Sure. That I will, I will I'm gonna pull up the, uh, the actual MDN link real quick here so I don't get any of these names wrong. Um, so yeah, the, the, uh, the actual JavaScript DOM API is called Validity State. It is supported back to um, IE 10 and Safari 11, which was really surprising when we first started looking into this. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing this professionally for close to 10 years and I had never heard of this as of you know, a year, year and a half ago, uh, but it has been out for quite some time. Um, so it is, it's a, an API that's available on any DOM input element, uh, just on the dot validity property. And then it gives you information, I believe all of them are just read-only properties about the state of the input at that moment in time. And you get properties such as uh, valid, which is this input is passing all of its validations. That's sort of the global one for the input. And then there's a different property that effectively map one-to-one -one with the HTML5 validation attribute. So if you have a required attribute on your input, there is a value missing field on the validity API. And so if it's required and it's not filled in, value missing would be true. And then to just go through some of the other ones, if you have a min length, that would correspond to a too short, T-O-O short property. There's a too long property for uh, max length. There is some for the numeric validation. So uh, range overflow, range underflow would be for the min and max properties on a number input. Uh, step mismatch for if you have a number input that has a step of like increment by five and you put in a non-multiple of five, it would fail the step mismatch property. Uh, and then a couple other ones, pattern mismatch and a couple other ancillary things. But there's, there's effectively a one-to-one -one mapping and I don't know why they're not named the same, but of the attribute you would use on the input element and then the DOM property you would look at to decide if that attribute is satisfied. That's super helpful. It is, it's interesting that they didn't name them sort of at all the same. Yeah, I had the same, so, I had the same yeah. on myself, so weird. <laughs> did, you, did you choose to map it in, in sort of the API that your utility exposes? Um, I think what I did was map it to the HTML attributes. Because yeah, to me, yeah, that's, that's exactly more, what you did. That's like, yeah, that's more ergonomic. Yeah, and why, why should a developer have to know that value missing is, is even a thing? Right, I mean, I didn't even know validity state was a thing. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I did look um, uh, in, in writing up the, the blog post about this. I was doing a little bit more research, and it looks like 
the vValidate library has actually gone a similar route since version two. So version two, they were, I think, using an actual directive so that the name vValidate comes from the directive v-validate that they had. And they, I think, used to be entirely through that directive. And then in, in v3, which came out, I believe, pretty close to, uh, to ViewConf, they actually came out with this new, very similar higher order component. I think it's called like a validation observer that they wrap around inputs that gives you, I don't know if they use validity state under the hood, but it gives you a, a pretty similar kind of API uh, rather than using a directive. But I think last I checked, you are still passing your validations through a custom prop on that higher order component. It's not kind of uh, determining them from attributes on its child input. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, I think it totally makes sense to just like hook into the HTML5 validation attributes as much as possible because I'm of the mindset that you should do things as close to the native APIs as possible so that, you know, if I learn this, let's say, Matt's custom validation uh, library and I learn that syntax, if it's tied to the uh, HTML5 syntax, then I could leave that library and still walk away with some valuable knowledge, right? Because it's still the mm -hmm. HTML5 um, validation stuff under the hood. Is great. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it kind of goes both ways there. You can you can work with that library, but be learning reusable HTML skills, uh, and it also lowers the barrier to entry to using that library in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, actually, you, like you're saying, vValidate had a sort of higher order component, and I think in your library, you went with a higher order component. And mm -hmm. with my library, I decided to just extend the input um, HTML element to like a custom component, which has that validation baked in. So I'm wondering. Okay. Now, With like, I'm uh, wrong. No, no. I, I think there are, you know, there are a ton of ways to get, to get to these end, end goals, uh, which is why we have options out there for these libraries. Um, are you talking about like a transparent wrapper for the input where you yeah, so, just. So in your case, it looks like a transparent wrapper. In my, well, that, that you would place an input inside of this with validation component, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in my case, I have a V input component that provides an input under the hood and, and expects a label and does all the sort of like um, accessibility stuff that you would want baked mm -hmm. into the input. And along with that comes some validation gotcha. okay. options. Now, did you, did you end up with that? I, got, I think that works. I think where I'm curious, did you end up with like any duplicative validation stuff from your V input to say V select to V text area? I actually wrap all of the different input options into one input and you just assign the different one with the type the same way that you gotcha. would assign okay. a... Yeah. So if it's a select, yeah. if the type is select, then you would get a select and not an input, but you know, mm. it's kind of in theory, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are, there are certainly pros and cons to both of them, but yeah, I think either of them work. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. No, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to dig into like maybe your, your mindset on why you went with a wrapper. Is it because you wanted to? Oh yeah. 
abstractions around like selects and text area inputs or yeah i i can point to a very specific reason that i lean towards the wrapper uh and that is the angular one ng options property so i, I spent a long time working in angular before uh this view rewrite our our current cart and checkout application which was kind of what i i was hired to to help architect in the beginning uh, of this replatform uh and ng options if, if is anyone familiar with that from angular one's form validation yeah, I vaguely remember it, but nothing in. It was like this, this, yeah, on, on an Angular one, I'm going to get the names wrong because they've, all these new frameworks have transitioned these names to mean very different things. But in Angular one, I believe it was a directive was sort of a custom component that you could use in an Angular template. But to do selects, you passed it, um, this ng options property, and it was like a meta syntax of, how to generate the option elements inside of the select. So if you had, for example, like an array of user objects, you would say like user for users, order by user.id, track by user.id, and track by was kind of the, the view key property equivalent. But it was this like, you know, pseudo English meta language you had to learn and it was fine for really simple things and then it got really messy in cases where you wanted to have fine-grained control over what order the options were in and whether they were disabled or not disabled or if you wanted an empty default kind of placeholder option at the beginning that i remember just the frustration of that and and thinking to myself like i know how to write option elements and i just want to write these five and i want them to have these values and, and these uh and these labels and I would always be in the docs trying to figure out the right way to do the meta syntax. So that left a big enough scar on me that, you know, when it came to this higher order, I liked the idea of you just write your input element or your select element exactly as you would in a raw HTML page. And then you write this other thing around it that does just the validation. But the, the meta property or that meta language was, was something that left a bad taste in my mouth from the Angular NG options world. Yeah, that makes sense is a lot of tough, tough decisions to make when, when as a library author. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it, and, and that being said, I've, uh, this, the higher order thing works really great for, um, inputs. It, it is a little trickier for selects. So we've, we've had our own issues with, with getting selects to work just the way we want as far as like pre-selecting things and, and when you're in charge of rendering the options. Um, I, I forget if we ended up with like a scope slot or something that passes in, the, the selected value so you can render the selected attribute on your option element so that it's not without its flaws to go the higher order route. So considering how everybody likes plug-in libraries that they can just drop in and do the work for them, uh, you'd mentioned that you guys have some internal code written that you can use that does this validation for you in, in, in your particular code. Is enhancement like this something that can be extrapolated to an external drop-in type library or is it uh, more of a custom thing depending upon your particular use case. Yeah. So I, I think, um, I think at different levels that, that answer differs. So we, we kind of have a three level approach to this. So the, uh, there's, you know, the with validation kind of what we're talking about that wraps a single input. <clears throat> we have, uh, that I think can be open source because there's not really, it, it doesn't do any styling. It doesn't do much that's custom to, to sort of our domain. It's just, taking HTML5 attributes and telling you if they're valid and then it's accepting custom validation. So uh, that one, I absolutely think we could, could pull out an open source. Um, the two levels above that, uh, the one called input enhancer 
is what wraps uh, that and it provides like an automatic label and a set of error messages below the input in real time. And it sort of takes care of listening to with validation and, and rendering errors and hiding errors uh, and doing a lot of accessibility stuff as far as linking the label to the for element and putting ARIA tags on there when it's valid or invalid um, stuff that we don't want devs to necessarily have to think about uh, every time they put a new input in. But that one then becomes uh, styled according to our design specs with a single file component. So it's a little trickier there that, that I haven't fully thought about what would be required to extrapolate just the component itself into that doesn't have any styles attached to it uh, and sort of open source that idea, but then still be able to, to style it in our own internal single file component. So now everything we've been talking about so far uh, mostly has to do with the validation of the data itself. You know, what are they putting in? Is this the right data? And so on and so forth. Um, at the beginning of your blog post, uh, you were, you had some images demonstrating the differences in the appearance of mm -hmm. the text field between the different browsers. Um, so I think you've shown Chrome, Firefox, and Safari. Does this progressive enhancement also address the appearance aspects of forms and trying to make them similar across browsers? Or is it strictly for data validation? So this one, just data validation for us. We, we because it, it doesn't know sort of nor care what's inside the slot. Mm. It just renders it. It just expects that somewhere inside the slot, there's going to be an input if I walk this DOM tree. So what we do internally is we, we use those, uh, I think similar to what's probably in this, the view tensils library, uh, we use uh, transparent wrapper components for our base, our base input, our base select, our base text area. Uh, and that's where we do all of our styling to kind of make those appearances consistent across browsers. But that, that is entirely separate from the validation that happens in this wrapper component. Okay, so yeah, I noticed you linked to a Chris Coyer CSS tricks article about making it look different some, for the UX. Yeah, so. that, that one was, was cool. I, I had never seen that until I wrote the blog post, but that was really neat with just how far you can get in real-time validation with only CSS. Uh, okay, I see what he's doing. Okay. Yeah, there was, I think, like a suit. There's a CSS pseudo, uh, pseudo selector called valid or invalid, maybe. Yeah, it's was valid. Uh-huh. Yeah. Colon, colon valid. That was, yeah. yeah, another thing I learned when I, uh, when I started doing a little research for this. Yeah, that's linked from your blog post, which we'll link to in the show notes. Cool, so anything else, uh, Matt, on the progressive form validation that uh, we need to cover that we haven't covered yet? Uh, I don't think so, no. I think, um, you know, I think that the big eye-opening part for us was just sort of how much was, was there in the DOM and how well it was supported across browsers. And, you know, maybe we can get the level of validation we want, you know, by by writing some code that's going to be a much smaller footprint on the output JavaScript bundle than, uh, than pulling in a library. Cool. Okay, so let's move on to another topic then of uh, modular UX store patterns. Um, so I've been working on an app over the past 10 months that I've got more UX uh, modules than I know what to do with just because it's a large <laughs> app. And um, uh, Lindsay and has seen this because I did a presentation at our uh, Portland view meetup on combining UX with APIs and, and, uh, data objects within your view components. Um, but it looks like you're 
going a little past that and dealing with uh, types of routes where you're passing in uh, dynamic values um, and dynamically yeah. registering your Vuex. So once you, uh, you've got three blog posts that you wrote on, obviously we'll link to those in the show notes as well. But if you want to, I guess, give an introduction as what exactly uh, you're addressing in these blog posts. And it looks like you have a library that does some stuff for this as well. Yeah, sure. So um, there's, there's sort of a very apparent problem that, that tripped us up early on um, that led to, to this, you know, this whole world of these, what we're calling like instance aware UX modules. But um, if, you know, if, for example, we're going from uh, our homepage, we might want to have a UX module that's just for the homepage and we can register that at, you know, at the root of our UX store and we can name it homepage and then we can, use map state and map actions and, and all the other good stuff that comes uh, in Vuex out of the box for the homepage module. Yep. And then if we route to say a product page from there, uh, the way we're doing it, our, our SSR approach is, is based almost exactly on what the, uh, the view SSR guide was two years ago when we started. So this was before they added the server prefetch hook. They used to have this, this idea of a function called async data. Uh, and that was, kind of wired up to run both on the server and the client. Uh, and then in, in, if you were routing from one page to another, there's this before resolve hook on a view router, which kind of tells you like, Hey, I'm, I'm about to go to this route. Here are the components for that route. And you have the ability to fetch data asynchronously there. So we started with this idea of, okay, well, we'll do a UX module for every page. And that worked great for homepage. And then we said, okay, well, let's do our product page. And we would register a UX module when we were about to route to a product page and we just used the name product. So you'd get on the root store, this new product module, and it would have all the information uh, of, you know, the current product you were on. And then the very first time, and we did this for a while with no animations in our app, and we would be able to click from one product to the next product to the next product. And it would just kind of reuse the store and change the information inside of it. And then we added animations and there's a code pen in, um, in the second blog post that sort of shows the problem, but we added this animation. And when you're kind of sliding out or fading out one product and fading in another one, there's a period of time where you have two different route level components mounted in the DOM. And we found that both of those components were looking at the same VUX store. So when you went from say the red dress to the blue dress and you clicked that link, it would fetch all the data for the blue dress and it would overwrite all the data in the UX store for the red dress. And that because of reactivity would very helpfully tell the current component to put all the new data in there. So as you were transitioning, your page leaving would actually flip from the red to the blue and you'd now be fading out a blue dress and in a blue dress because we were using one store for two components. Does that, does that make sense without having sort of a visual? Oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. Oh yeah. So we, we were kind of stumped initially. It was like, well, this, this stinks. We can't, use, uh, we can't use modules for our product pages because our product pages are, are slug specific at the route level. Um, and then we started to think, well, can we use uh, names for those modules that are slug aware? Can we have product dash dash red dress? And, product dash dash blue dress and, and whatever the, the unique slugs are so that we can actually have two VUX modules, two product modules next to one another at the same time while we're in this transition state. 
<clears throat> and that worked great. And we, we, you know, dynamically register these modules when we fetch the data. Uh, but then we found that you can't use map state because map state, when you want to map from a module name only takes a string. And that string is not known at sort of build time or whatever for, uh, or I guess really at like component creation time. Um, so you can't so use a, you can't use a variable and read that variable to get the string and map to that module. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could use like a variable in your JavaScript file, but it's, it's going to be that variable value for every instance of that component. There was no way at runtime to say, okay, I'm the product view component for this slug. I want to use map state against this dynamic module name, which is going to be product dash slug. So we, we, from there, we opened an issue with, uh, we actually went looking, there's a, there was an issue that had been opened a while before in the Vuex repo uh, and a bunch of really good discussion. And there, there are ways to accomplish that, but a lot of them were, you know, you couldn't use direct computed properties anymore and you couldn't use map state. But if in your created hook, you did some things and uh, kind of spread your new functions onto dollar options, you could get it to work. So there were ways to work around it, but they all just felt different. And, and, you know, for us, we really wanted developers who were either working in a route that needed or cared about these instance aware modules, like a PDP or a product page versus developers who are working in a route that didn't like homepage or cart where there's just one route. Uh, we didn't want them to have to change the way that they worked with UX. We wanted it to be a very similar pattern where they, if you need state, you use map state. And if you need an action, you use map actions. So we wrote this, this little wrapper function internally called, called map instance state that effectively allows you its same exact API as map state, but you can provide a function as the, the namespace parameter. And that function accepts a component instance. And then you can read from a prop or you can read from say $route.params.slug. If you want to grab the slug for the product page you're on, you can read from anything that component has access to at runtime. And so you, mentioned using, module. so you mentioned using map state. Is there an advantage of using map state over the separate map getters and map actions? I wanted to ask. No, so we, we actually have, we have a, a version of this for each of those four. So we have a, a map instance state, a map instance getters, map instance actions, and map instance mutations. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. That is... A fascinating approach, but it makes me wonder. So, with sys or with the uh, Vuex modules, um, as I understand them, I, I, I've never heard of something like this with like dynamic module naming, and it's cool. It's really interesting. But if I had, so you're essentially going to have a different module potentially for every product in your website or every page of your website. Yeah. Yeah, one module created each time you go to a page. So would you, are, are you, like, I'm wondering if you're going to hit any sort of memory issues if a user yeah. goes to the, yeah, yeah, okay. No, no, no yeah. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a very, a very real problem. Um, yeah. We, uh, 
like I said, we're, we have our own sort of USSR setup. Uh, we're not using Nuxt. Uh, it, would be, it would be nice if we could. We have some, uh, some use cases internally that, that Nuxt doesn't quite fit at the moment. Uh, but what we're doing is, uh, like I said, using that before resolve hook uh, and the view router after each hook. So we're actually tracking. The, the easiest way to do it is just say every, every time I'm about to go to a route and before resolve, I register the new destination route module. Uh -huh. And then in the after each function, I unregister the module for the page I've just left and if I uh, clean okay. it up. That, that's yeah. the, the quick one-to-one. -one. Uh, and that's what we did initially. And then it was actually a, uh, a discussion with some of our iOS folks. So we were sort of talking to them about like, how does iOS, and I'm, I'm not an iOS developer. I don't know many details about how this works for them, but they were kind of saying like, oh yeah, like we, we have that. Every page in the route has a spot to put its data. And I was like, oh, well, how do you guys clean that up as you go page to page? And he was like, oh, you know, like iOS takes care of that, but like we kind of don't. And I, that caught me by surprise. It was like, what do you mean you don't clean it up? Uh, and, and he basically said like iOS kind of handles that for them. Like when iOS needs more space, it's like, oh, here's this old garbage collectible stuff. Um, but the, the big point that he was saying, the advantage they have is that if you're going, say the user clicks the back button, if you kept that store around, you might be able to just instantaneously take them back as long as it's not expired or, or however. So you can get a little more complex if you want in those hooks to say, you know what, like don't clean it up immediately. Keep around the last three pages I was on or the last four pages I was on. And then just in case the user clicks back to that same page, like we might be able to make it a really fast transition. Why delete all this data that we might need in the near future? So that, that is where your memory footprint comes in. If you obviously change that to be keeper on the last 50 views, that would probably be a bad idea. Um, but we have experimented with that. We're just keeping around two right now, the current page and the prior page. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You could also, I guess, in theory, because I, th I feel like 50 probably wouldn't be that bad either, but you could probably keep it for a certain amount of time, right? Like set a timestamp in the future when the page is loaded and then when you go back to the page, check if it exists and if the timestamp is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's sort of exactly where we envision we might go. Um, right now we just have sort of this static kind of first in first out queue, I guess it would be of, of N past views, which we just have set to two, but it's a variable we can just change to five and we'll just keep the most five recent. We don't, we haven't done anything with the, the notion of expiring just yet. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'd be really easy to just tack on sort of a root level property per store of, you know, this thing expires at some timestamp and then you could decide it's no longer valid when they hit the back button. So I, I understand if you're wanting to keep kind of a history of 10, 50, whatever number of pages as you're going in just trying to handle the data between two pages, did you just look at keeping the data locally to the, to the view and just having those two components slide each other out? Was, was that at all in your consideration? So just, just put it all on component local state? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that, that's, I think, in a, in a spa, like a, just a client-side rendered app, that would, that would absolutely work, and that, that's probably like a really good way to go. Um, in a server-side rendered app, there, you need a way to like communicate that state from the server, and Vuex seems to be the, the way to do that. I, I can't say that I've ever really thought much about what other ways you would do it, but... You know, when using SSR, the, the general practice is you fill your Vuex store on the server and then you stringify it up to the client and then, and then hydrate the store on the client from there. So I don't know of any way to use strictly component local data and then kind of 
communicate that from the server render up to the client and, and rehydrate that component. Okay. No, but that makes sense because then you're, then you're keeping the data flow in the same way that you would u- be using it once the application is finished loading as well. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been an interesting uh, road for us as we, you know, we, we did this initially to solve and this is where um, the third blog post gets into some, some other use cases we've, I would say we unlocked after we, we did this kind of instance aware approach. It was, it was done initially just to solve this routing problem. And then, you know, if we're, we're good there. I'd be happy to talk about sort of how we use it in, in at least one other use case. And go yeah. for it. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Um, so we we got to doing our cart page, and this is what the third blog post is all about. But uh, on the cart page, we made this you know reusable cart store, this reusable cart component, because we knew I've got to render a cart item on my cart page. I need to render a cart item. When I get to the receipt page, I need to render a card item on each page in the checkout flow. Uh, and then we have this concept of like a save for later cart. So you can have items in your cart, and Amazon has this in most e-commerce companies, I think, but you can have items in your cart and you can just say like, oh, I'll save this for later. And it'll go into this later cart. And we actually display that on the cart page just further down. So we wanted to use uh, a Vuex module for our cart items. And then we hit this, scenario where like we needed to actually show two carts on the page at the same time. And we started going down the road of, okay, well our module will have a cart items array and then maybe a saved items array. And we'll just have two different sets of V4s and they'll read from the different arrays. Um, And then we kind of realized like we were building this reusable Vuex cart module to use on multiple pages. So we would eventually want it on maybe the receipt page because we're showing a version of a cart there. We might want it on the wish list page because there's a version of a cart there. Uh, and we might want it in checkout. There's a version of a cart there. And in all of those scenarios, there was just one cart. So we had this like one-off use case where we were going to go dirty up this store with a, a different array and a whole bunch of logic about how do I behave for this other set of cart items how do I make slightly different API calls for these other set of card items? Um, and it didn't seem to make sense to us to dirty that up and then ship a bunch of dead code to all these other routes. So it, it sort of all of a sudden, you know, we kind of realized like we solved this problem of I need to use two components doing a very similar thing with two different Vuex modules when I'm routing from one page to another. And we just had a very similar scenario to that in that we wanted to just render two components side by side using a very similar UX module. So on that page, we're actually using like a cart dash active and a cart dash later or saved uh, two instance aware UX modules that are just cart stores. So from a code standpoint, just speaking in terms of, of the files that you've written. So for these, Vuex modules, you're, it's basically you're really using a Vuex template and registering it with Vuex as separate stores, right? Yes, as, as two sort of side-by-side modules on our root store. <clears throat> okay. Similar to the way you write a component where you use a dynamic value as part of your slug and you reuse the same component for different sets of data. Yeah, yeah, similar. Okay. So, so the, way, the way we do this cart one at least is... Um, we render you know, our cart item property or our sort of like cart list property or component. And they take a property of these are the items from the active store or these are the items from the save store. And then internally we use that map instance function to say, 
when I'm mapping in aspects from Vuex, they should map in from the active store or the saved store. But it allows us to kind of not think too much about that inside the component itself. We just say like, oh, execute the remove item action. And then Vuex, it actually directs it to the proper Vuex store to dispatch that action and make the API call. Cool. I like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm been looking at the blog post and it'd probably take a little bit of actual playing with it to get my head completely around it. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. something that we didn't wrap our heads around for, for a while until we kind of got into the weeds for sure. And, and I, I don't think I put together in this third post, I forget if I did a code pen. I don't think I did. Um, because no, I think I realized like just, just how, you know, I, it would be a good bit of effort to, to get a code pen up with a lot of the boilerplate I would need. So it's, it's mostly just code samples there. Right. Um, but I, I would love to, to, you know, go back and actually get sort of a, a dumbed down example of, of kind of how this works. So now you do have a Vuex helpers NPM library, right? Yes. So that, that is those four functions that map instant state actions, getters and mutations. Okay, cool. We'll put the link to that in the show notes for sure. All right, anything else on the Vuex helpers uh, that we missed or that uh, you want to cover? No, I don't, I don't think so. We'll, we've got some other little utility things that we use that, that might make their way into that library. So, and I'm sure, that, and this isn't tied to these dynamic Vuex modules uh, per se, but getting, you know, getting the, the state for a nested module is, you know, is sometimes a little tricky. If you have a dynamic slash separated module name that's maybe one or two or three levels deep, you, you often, in Vuex, you don't have access to your parent module state which I, I find interesting. It's, it's an improvement that I've been meaning to look into and, and maybe open up an issue and ask if there's like a, a, a technical reason for that. But we have a case or two where we're uh, nested modules, one or two or three levels deep, and they want to talk to their parent module. And the only way to do that is to go up to the root store and walk the tree down their parents' nested namespace. So there's some little utilities we have around like get me the state for this nested module namespace. And it just kind of does the walking the tree for you because we found ourselves kind of rewriting that a lot. Now, so in the app, uh, my app that I've been working on, it's an administration tool. The way that we did it, and I can show you some code later, is we use, uh, the Vuex uses a class-based approach. So for all of, and this may or may not work in your, in your particular case, but we have like a base store module file that's, it's basically a class, a JavaScript class. And then mm. all, and it contains all of the uh, state values and getters and actions and uh, mutations that is common across all of the components in the particular application. And then all of the child components basically extend that. And okay. so that way uh, in your uh, instance, in your, custom modules for a, a given route or page. And we're not using dynamic routes like you are, so maybe there might be some disconnect there. But you just only add the stuff that uh, is above and beyond what's in the base. Okay. And so then you can, it, you know, you're accessing your same store, you know, you use your module names and then whether you are accessing something in the base store or your customized stuff, it's all transparent in the view module because you're just, it's all part of the same, uh, namespace. Um, okay. So that's a that's an option. Uh, again, I don't know if that would help you with in dealing with the uh, the dynamic slug values that you're you're using, but it's it's one way that's worked well 
in, in my particular use yeah. case. Yeah, that's interesting. Is it now, is it like you can do in, on a Vuex module, you can do that namespace true or false flag, which sort of makes it behave as like a mix into the store versus actually creating like a new nested level. Are you guys turn, having setting that flag to true? Um, or, or no, is it in just the ex, in the extended ones? No, we're not setting any uh, namespacing. Okay, so yeah, that 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 makes and that certainly does. We've we've used that pattern in in some uh, a couple places, uh, but yeah, we found that 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 simplifies a lot of this problem we had with like I need my parent module state. If you just mix it in, then like there is no parent. You're you're now like sibling properties, and it, it's a lot easier to get at that data. Right. And yeah, so in the in the child ones, you basically just do uh, some object assigned to you know your new stuff to your base, and, and then it's all oh. all uh, accessible. So anyway, just yeah, no, that, that definitely sounds like for for that it would it would work just as well. Right. Cool. Okay, well we're bumping up against time here, so let's go ahead and head into picks. Uh, and Matt, since you said you had a couple of picks lined up, why don't you start us out? Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I have I have two things I wrote down, and these are I know these are kind of uh, anything we want, right? Not anything even necessarily tech related. Cool. Not at all. It's so be completely unrelated. Ice awesome. cream. <laughs> oh yeah, don't don't get me started there. Uh, we have been uh, binging on HBO the show The Outsider recently, which is uh, keeping me up late at night because I don't want to turn it off because the cliffhangers are amazing. But it's like a um, it's like a version of Stranger Things, I would say. It's it's only got one season. I don't even think the season's over. There are like seven episodes right now, so we've watched I think five of them in, in like the past two nights, uh, and they're they're you know an hour each, and the show is just really really interesting. So I don't know if anyone has seen that before. It's based on a Stephen King novel, I think. And then uh, my second one is is a, a company out of New York City. I had been on the market for. Uh, a nice pair of boots. So wintertime, you know, snow and rain and all that. Uh, and a lot of nice leather boots are like $500. And there's this company in New York city called Thursday boots that makes a really great pair for $200, which was the, the cheapest, good, solid, long lasting leather pair I can find. So I have been wearing them just about every day in the winter here and they're, uh, they're working out great. All right. Uh, Austin, you got any picks for us? Uh, sure. I'm just going to keep it short. Um, I'm going to pick, and I don't have any specific name in general, but um, I have a charging cable that has an adapter for like four different devices. And it's just like USB on one end and then USB-C and iPhone and micro USB on the other. And you can charge like multiple devices at once. And it's pretty sweet. I got it here and I can charge my phone and my, my headphones at the same time. And I just, I just feel good when I use it. Good deal. Lindsay, you're up. I have two picks today. Um, first one is programming related directly. And I realized that we are a view at podcast. We talk all about Vue and how much we love Vue. Uh, I've recently been playing with Alpine JS at work. Uh, have any of you heard of that one? Yeah, I've heard. Uh, I know Adam Wathen's done a podcast with uh, uh, was it Caleb Porgio. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, with the podcast, I really talk about it. So yeah, it's, I've heard quite a bit. I'm hearing more and more about it. So the best way to think of it is, tail, is, the way they describe it is, think of it like Tailwind for JavaScript. The idea is you can just sprinkle in JavaScript as you need in your standard HTML template. 
and get some extra functionality. So you can set data like uh, his, his core example is a dropdown opening and closing. So you can set a data attribute of open is false. And then you do just like in view an at click open equals true. And then if you click away, open equals false. And there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. It's very lightweight. Um, pretty much anything that you use V dash something in view that maps to X dot something in Alpine. Right. There's X data, X show, X bind, X model. It's, it's been really nice. We're using in a, in an application where the, the goal was to show the same view, the same interactivity on two applications. One of them was view. One of them was something completely different. So we wanted that flexibility. Uh, and that's been nice to work with. So that's Alpine JS. The, the second pick I have is a book. Um, it's called 10% Happier by Dan Harris. I'm sure as programmers, I'm hoping I'm not just putting this on myself, but as programmers, we, we often get stressed by all of the stuff that's going on around us, trying to keep up with everything that's happening in JavaScript or other languages. What's going on at work, doing side projects, doing side jobs. Um, and I discovered I was, I was starting to feel very stressed. So uh, this book was recommended to me, and it, the, the subtitle is How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. Uh, it talks about his journey through and discovering how he could use meditation in his life uh, and still be a reporter that has to be fighting to get uh, jobs and stuff. It just kind of spoke to me as a programmer. It felt like a similar industry in that regard. Indeed, most excellent. Okay, so my pick is one that I've, uh, I'm going to reuse from another podcast, but I love it so much. Um, my favorite uh, stand-up comedian is a guy named uh, Stephen Wright. Uh, he's the king of deadpan comedians. And uh, his jokes are always very, for the most part, tend to be pretty short. And the kind where the first time you hear it, you think, what? Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay, I get it. That's funny. And the nice thing is a lot of his jokes you can use, uh, you know, when instances come up in day-to-day -day conversations. Like if I'm sitting in a group of people and my foot falls asleep, I'll say, uh, man, I hate it when my foot falls asleep during the day because that means it's going to be up all night. Or... Uh, at my old house where I had a, one of those light switches by the door, you know, that doesn't seem to do anything. And I'll tell people, yeah, I got, when we first moved in, I used to flick that button up and down all the time and nothing would happen. And then one day I got a letter from a lady in Germany. She said, cut it out. So, you know, it's uh, uh, a lot of conversation enhancers once you, uh, once you learn the jokes, but uh, anyway, I'll put a link to, uh, his 1985 HBO special, which is first real big thing, and that turned into a, a comedy album called I Have a Pony. Uh, but I'll put the link, and it's uh, quite entertaining. So I guess that's it for our episode today. Thank you, Matt, for coming on and enlightening us uh, with uh, the form enhancement and the Vuex stuff. I know I learned a few things. And uh, with that, we'll call it an episode. Thanks a lot, everybody. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Right on, dudes. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.